Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me as we continue our new Tuesday series where one of our all-star podcast guests will be taking over the podcast, picking the topics of the month, and joining me on all the episodes. For the month of March, our takeover guest is Suzanne Stefani. There's a lot of things that can impact debt, right, that's going on in the economy. So I thought it was a good time to kind of break out a refresher here. That was Suzanne, back today to discuss the impact the current macroeconomic environment is having on the all-important classification of debt as current or non-current. Companies took on more debt during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we saw debt-to-equity ratios climb, including across the S&P 500 companies. These market forces may impact the classification of debt, which, in turn, impacts ratios investors use to assess companies' cash flow resources and obligations. Defaults and covenant violations may be more common right now, and the accounting for covenant violations can get very complicated very quickly, especially when you add in grace periods, waivers, and refinancing. And, of course, navigating subjective acceleration clauses is challenging even when not in an economic downturn. There's a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Suzanne, welcome back to the All-Star Takeover. And so nice to have you here again today for another new topic. I love that we have four different topics this month. So this one is around the balance sheet classification of debt. And why did you pick this topic? Yeah, so I picked this topic for a couple of reasons. One, just timing, right? We're in March, so we're getting towards the Q1 filings coming up for public companies. And two, private companies, I think a lot of them are still preparing their annual financial statements. And so this is the time of year where we get a lot of questions on debt classification just because we've got the quarter end and the year end with the annual, sorry, with the um, private companies. But now, especially a little bit more now, um, with the current economy and what's going on. And I sound like a broken record if you've heard me say this <laughs> um, like on, on other podcasts. But for there's a lot of things that can impact debt, right, that's going on in the economy. Of course, everyone hears about rising interest rates. So we're in a really high interest rate environment. So we got a lot of debt out there that's floating rate debt. So a lot of companies are facing higher interest payments now. And then you've got inflation and just volatile markets overall. You, we're seeing just higher costs, reduced revenue, negative operating results, and and even declining asset values, their fair values. So with all those factors, right, there's just less cash on hand. So companies may be struggling to make their debt payments. They might see more defaults. Covenant violations might be more likely given the changes in all those things. Collateral values can go down, borrowing-based changes. So it's just a lot of things going on that can actually impact debt classification. So I thought it was a good time to kind of break out a refresher here. Well, yeah, and I think Suzanne is always, it seems like it's always a good time for this topic because there are some nuances here that can get a little tricky. But Suzanne, before we get into it, I know the FASB had a project to simplify debt classification that was a while back, and we've talked about it on past podcasts. So can we just close the loop on what happened? Because it's it's gone, right? <laughs> It's gone. Yeah. So we were talking about that um, for many years. So I think that project started around 2014. And there were actually two exposure drafts that went out. And they were proposing some pretty big changes to debt classification. And there was a lot of feedback received on the exposure drafts, um, raising different questions, asking about specific scenarios. 
And I think ultimately, I think it was about 2021, the board decided to just to drop the project because things, with all the questions and trying to address those fact patterns, they just weren't able to achieve their goal, which was simplification of debt classification. So they decided to drop the project. So everything is as is. So whatever you heard us talk about that project, um, ignore, ignore. (laughs) So there's really no changes um, to the rules in this area. But you know, again, just wanted to highlight it because I just think it's a good time to talk about it. Yes, Suzanne, these are probably (laughs) the same rules that were in place when you and I started the firm years and years ago. So, all right. So Suzanne, let's jump straight in to one of the areas where I know we tend to get the most questions. And I think your point is right, that we are getting more questions now. And that would be covenant violations, never a, a good topic. But as company, you know, I love going through examples with you. So let's assume a company's preparing their um, first quarter financial statements, or I guess we could have a, a year-end private mm-hmm. company, and they have a covenant violation in one of their debt agreements. So how should they be thinking about their debt classification? Yeah. So first, you know, if a company fails the covenant at the balance sheet date, and they don't get a waiver, and there's no grace period in place, then of course, the debt's current. It's it's demand debt. That's pretty easy, pretty basic. Um, it gets more complex when there are, when there are grace periods in the debt agreement, or when a company gets a waiver. So I'm going to start out with grace periods, right? So some debt agreements have grace period, where it gives a company a chance to cure a violation within a specified time period. So this might not be common with like point in time financial covenants, like interest ratio or leverage ratios. You can't really fix that because that's like is what it is based on the numbers. But it is more common with like, I'll call them kind of like continuous covenants, like a covenant like you have to have insurance in place or some business license or something like that where you have to maintain these things. And if you don't, it's a covenant violation. So a lot of times those can have grace periods. So for an example, like if we're talking about the end of Q1, so we're reporting on 331, and a company has a covenant in place to that they have to have property insurance in place. Maybe the a building or something is collateral for the debt. And let's say the insurance coverage lapsed a couple of days before the 331 balance sheet date, but the debt agreement gives them a 30-day cure period. So they have 30 days to get the insurance back in place. That's the grace period, if you will. And if you don't get insurance in uh, coverage in place by then, then the bank can demand repayment if they want. So the question is, how would that debt be classified at 331? Because the company is in violation at the balance sheet date, but you have this grace period. So it, well, like at the balance sheet date, we're in the middle in the grace period. So the answer is it really depends on if it's probable if the violation will be cured within the grace period. So if it's probable of curing, uh, sorry, if it's probable of curing, <laughs> then it can be non-current. Otherwise, it would be current if you think you weren't going to fix it. So Say in my example, this might be kind of an easy example because there's a 30-day cure period. So it's likely that I'm not going to issue the financial statements until after the grace period. So I would know if if it was me and I was the company that if I cured the violation or not. So it'd be pretty easy. So it just gets a little more challenging if there's a longer grace period or if maybe for some reason you have to issue the financial statements like very soon after the balance sheet date, then it'd just be a little more judgmental and you have to figure out if you think you're going to cure or not. Now, if you do end up classifying as non-current with a grace period, that's fine. You just have to disclose that. So you would just disclose the circumstances around the violation. So the reader kind of knows like you're the financial statement reader knows you're in that situation. 
All right. So that is violation at the balance sheet date and what you would do if you're able to cure. Now let's move to the case that maybe instead you'd go to have a waiver from the bank. So again, same thing, you have a covenant violation, but in this case, there's no grace period. And so instead I'm the company and I get a waiver before I've issued the financials. How do you impact classification or how does that impact classification? Yeah. So you violated a covenant. looks like you just, you violate a covenant at the balance sheet date, but you go ahead and get a waiver um, from the lender after, but before you issue the financials. So just because you got a waiver, it it's not automatically non-current. There's a couple other things to think about. One, you have to look at the waiver and look at, has the lender give up, given up its right to, re- to force repayment for that particular covenant violation for at least 12 months from the balance sheet date? Now, what I usually see, like if you fail a particular covenant at the balance sheet date, the lender's usually going to waive its right to force repayment based on that violation forever, like indefinitely. So that's usually pr- pretty straightforward. The next part, which takes a little more judgment, is a probability assessment. So you have to determine if it's probable that the company will fail that same covenant or a more restrictive one again within 12 months from the balance sheet date. So if it's probable the covenants won't be met in that period, it's going to be current, even though you got a waiver, you know, and then everything else would be non-current. And you would use kind of current estimates and forecasts to make that determination. All right. So Suzanne, I'm hoping you have an example for us, but let me just re-clarify that. So I get the waiver and that's enforceable for at least 12 months that the bank will not call because of that particular violation, Uh but I still have to make sure I won't violate that covenant again. Yeah. That's kind of the model. So it makes you look out for the next 12 months to see if you're from the balance sheet date, if you're going to violate again. So I do have an example. Perfect. Why don't we go through that? (laughs) You know, I always do. So say you have a debt agreement that requires like a minimum level of working capital at the end of each quarter. So let's say the bank has the right to demand immediate repayment, call call it a, a covenant violation if the working capital falls below that certain level. So let's say, you know, I'm at the end of Q1 and it's 331 and I fail that covenant. I'm the company. So the bank can make me repay that debt immediately, but instead I'll go out and ask the bank for a waiver before I issue the financials. So the bank permanently give up, gives up its right to demand payment as a result of the violation, but I can't just stop there and say, oh, I'll call it non-current and everything's great. <clears throat> I need to look out the next 12 months for the next four quarters to see if that working capital ratio or even like a more restrictive covenant has to be met in that period. If it does... I'd have to assess if it's probable that I would fail any of those covenants during the period. Again, like I said, using estimates and forecasts. And if it's probable to fail, I'm still going to make it current, even though I went out and got that waiver. Okay, so I'm going to ask the question. I'm sure our entire audience is thinking right now is that then if I'm going to fail it, like what's the point of getting a waiver in this case? Well, in some cases, you might get a waiver just because you might, you just need it because the company might, sorry, because the, the bank might make you repay it. So you might get that one waiver as like kind of a patch to, move, you know, so you got that and then you have to look forward and think about the next quarter. But what a lot of people will do is like, what did I say? It was a minimum working capital ratio, right? right. And if I failed it at 331 and I knew 
that I had to do this assessment, right? And look out if it was probable to fail it again. And I pretty much thought I was going to. I'd probably ask the lender at the same time that I wanted that waiver to amend the agreement to maybe get a covenant holiday and take that covenant away for this next 12 months or however long, or to give me like less restrictive and easier covenants to meet. And so then when you're kind of doing this probability assessment, you can look at those amended covenants to determine it. So yeah, so a lot of times like you're not going to pay for a waiver and then it's not going to help you get to to non-current. You're going to look out, when you go ask for that waiver, you're going to look out and see what the next couple quarters are looking like and, and likely you'll ask the lender to amend. Now, sometimes maybe you can't, like with the current economy, might be really expensive to get that done or the lender might might just not want to do it if you're like in a bad shape. B- bad risk, yeah. So, so Suzanne, let me clarify one point. So we're back at 331. I violate, I get my waiver. What you're saying is they are waiving their right to call the debt for my 331 violation. And so that's why you have to look ahead and see if you're going to uh, have a covenant violation for the same thing again in June. Right. And then there'd be an issue. I was thinking you were saying they were permanently giving up the right to enforce, but that's more your second scenario. All right. Very helpful clarification. Okay. That that seems more logical to me. Okay, good. Yes. Helpful. All right. So then let's talk about something else because I know what we're focused on here is covenant violations at the balance sheet date. But of course, I know there's other things where it potentially, let's see you avoid a covenant violation because you modify the debt ahead of the balance sheet date. And so, I mean, to me, that seems like on the surface, at least, oh, that's great. I modify my debt. I don't have to do anything. But of course, we wouldn't be talking about it if there weren't some things to think about. So what are those issues? Yeah. So this one can be a a bit of a surprise to some. Um, So because the fact pattern is right at the balance sheet date, you're in compliance with the covenant. So you think everything's great. But there's guidance that says if a covenant violation was avoided through a modification that was done before the balance sheet date, you should look at that same waiver guidance that I just talked about. So it's like so it's like you got a waiver kind of in advance of the violation, if that makes sense. Yes. So like if you are, let's say you're at the beginning of, say you're again, you're a public company and you're at Q1 again, 331. But before that happens, like say the beginning of March, you know that you're going to fail interest coverage ratio, let's say at 331. So you could go to the bank and ask them to amend that interest coverage ratio to make it less, less restrictive for 331. So you can meet it. Right. So at 331, you meet the balance sheet. Sorry, at 331, you meet the covenant, but you have to look out just like you do for a waiver and say, am I going to fail that interest coverage ratio or even a more restrictive covenant, you know, 12 months following the balance sheet date? So similar to what I was talking about before with the waiver, usually if you're asking the bank to modify the debt, you're not going to just modify it so you meet at 331 and then have to go back again like quarters after so usually they'll try to companies will try to do it all at once like they'll look at that ratio and say oh i'm not making it at 331 i'm probably not going to make it for the next year so they have to get the lender to change it um you know going forward and then when you do that then it's pretty likely that you'll say you're going to pass it in the next 12 months and you can get to non-current. And again, it just really depends on what the lender 
agrees to give you. All right. So let me turn that slightly, mm-hmm. Suzanne. So let's assume um, that I have a scenario where I'm actually in compliance at the end of Q1 and I didn't make any inv- modifications in okay. advance or anything else, but maybe it's really, really close. Yeah. Um, or even if it's not close, I can look ahead and I know, um, or at least I expect that I'm going to fail the covenant next quarter. Does that impact my classification at March 31? Yeah. So no, generally no, because classification is based on facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. So in Q1, in your example, you don't have a violation. You don't have anything going on, assuming no other conditions for not for current, you know, are sorry for non-current or failed. So so the debt could be non-current, right? So you're again in your example, it was like three thirty-one. I'm good. Say six thirty-one. I'm going to fail. You can have the debt be non-current, but you should disclose. Um, the violations that are expected to happen after the balance sheet and, and any adverse consequences, just so the reader knows that, you know, it's possibly coming. Okay, that's helpful. And that definitely makes sense because you are reporting on, the in this example, the 331 um, balance sheet. And again, I think that disclosure is very key. All right, so then Suzanne, I know another topic that we spend time talking about is cross-default provisions. And I feel like... <laughs> Good things cannot, sometimes good things do not happen when you have, have cross default. So what are these and how do they work? Yeah. So I want to talk about two. There's cross default provisions and there's cross acceleration provisions. So it's two different things. Um, so some debt agreements can have a cross default provision. So say company, you know, you're a company that has debt. I'm just going to make up with bank A, right? So if the debt agreement with Bank A has a cross-default provision in it, that means if any other debt agreement that the company has is in default at any time, then Bank A debt is also automatically in default too. So basically what the cross-default clause does is it brings in all of the covenants from all of the company's other debt agreements into that Bank A debt agreement. So if there was a covenant violation at the balance sheet date in another one of the company's debt agreements, there would also be a violation in this bank A debt and bank A could force repayment. So that means, you know, if I default on another, if, if the company defaults on another debt instrument, they'd have to also go to bank A to get a, get a waiver for that, for bank A's debt as well, because the same, and the same waiver guidance that we talked about earlier would also apply. So even if they got a waiver from bank B, they would have to go to bank A? In the cross default situation. I mean, all debt agreements kind of work differently. Yeah, so you have to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe more common, I don't know, but is the cross acceleration clauses. So cross acceleration clauses work a little different. It's not the trigger for the default in my example, in like bank A, is not when another agreement defaults, but rather when another agreement gets accelerated, right? So meaning I could have a covenant violation in another debt agreement, but maybe I do go get a waiver from the other lender and that other lender does not accelerate that debt, then I'm not in violation uh, I see. of okay. this one. So it really depends. One, I would, you know, really look at your debt agreements to see what you have there. If you do have these things and and figure out which one it is. The accelerated one is much easier um, to deal with because you, you know if another debt was accelerated. 
you know that. But the other one, the default, well, you know that too, but it just might not seem as obvious. Yeah, that you have to go get a waiver from uh, both of them. Right. Yes. All right. That's helpful. All right. So Suzanne, then let me switch to another one. And this would be subjective acceleration clauses because um, we just talked about cross- um, cross defaults and cross acceleration, but subjective acceleration is when I feel like frequently comes up and I know they're often in debt agreements and they can impact debt classification, especially, you know, during an economic downturn. Um, But before we talk about that, can you just remind our listeners what a subjective acceleration clause is? Because it likely is not labeled as such in the debt agreement. Yeah. So basically a subjective acceleration clause, you hear a lot of people call it a SAC or a MAC, but start with a SAC. A subjective acceleration clause is a clause that gives the lender some subjectivity around when it's going to accelerate the repayment of the debt. And like you said, it can come in a variety of forms and be called all sorts of things, but they're very common. Most debt agreements will actually have them. Like you might see them come across as an event of default. So one common event of default will say, if there's a material adverse change in the business since, you know, maybe a certain date or something like that, this is an event of default. So the reason why that is subjective is the agreements don't usually define what material adverse change is. So it leaves um, some subjectivity for the lender to determine what it thinks is a material adverse change. So say a company loses one of its major customers, the company might, for whatever reason, the company might not think that's a material adverse change, but would result in event of default. But the bank might think otherwise, you know, and if the bank thinks that's a material adverse change, then that's an event of default. And and they can force, you know, depending on the debt agreement works, but they could possibly force the company to repay the debt. So you can kind of see how that's subjective, right? Because it depends on, it's kind of in, judgmental, what you think is a big change. So it's not black and white, like an interest coverage ratio or something like that. It's it's really subjective. So then Suzanne definitely seems difficult because now you're trying to put yourself into the head of the lender. So what do you have to think about when you're classifying debt that has a subjective acceleration clause? Yeah. So there's, there's guidance that basically says, you know, at each balance sheet date, you're kind of supposed to do a probability assessment to determine if you think it's probable that the lender would force repayment um, based on the SAC in the next 12 months, say, following the balance sheet date. And it's using facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. So if acceleration is deemed to be probable of happening, then the debt would be current, right? And the guidance gives some examples of, you know, when acceleration might be probable, like it says, if a borrower has recurring losses or liquidity problems or, you know, or if there's a significant major event that, you know, that happens. Now, if it's just reasonably possible, then you would just have to disclose the existence of the SAC. That's usually sufficient and the debt doesn't have to be current. And then, of course, if it's remote, you know, there, there's not any action to take there. Um, so there is some judgment around that and making that determination and so there's kind of one situation I, I wanted to talk about regarding a going concern opinion here because the question comes up and unfortunately seeing a little bit more going, going concern issues um, of late. So say you had um, your private company, you're doing your annual financials 
And after the balance sheet date, you get a, you know, an audit opinion with an emphasis of a matter for a going concern. And let's say, you know, that's an event of default at the company, but for an event of default with the bank, but it doesn't happen until after the balance sheet date. So technically, right, the debt could be non-current because like I talked about earlier, it's, it's facts and circumstances at the balance sheet date. But let's say you have a subjective acceleration clause too, and you're trying to figure out, you need to figure out if acceleration is going to be probable of happening. Because remember I said, the guidance says if you have recurring losses or liquidity problems, it, it might be probable that the lender is going to accelerate the sack. So if there is a going concern opinion issued, usually going concern assessment is done at a different date than the balance sheet date. It's done 12 months from the financial statement issuance date, whereas the balance sheet date looks at 12, sorry, whereas the classification of current non-current looks at 12 months from the balance sheet date. So it's a little different. Um, I'd say there's kind of a general presumption that the liquidity issues that gave rise to the going concern were maybe there at the balance sheet date as well, which may cause you to think that acceleration is probable based on the sack and make the debt current because of the sack. But I'm not, I'm not saying it's an absolute. You have to do the probability assessment. Sometimes factors that impact going concern might have come up after the balance sheet date because of that mismatch with the timing. But it's just definitely something to keep in mind. All right. Definitely something to think about. So then, Suzanne, what it, obviously we've spent a lot of time here talking about getting a waiver for covenant violations. But I know that sometimes instead of trying to get the waiver, the company still will just go out and refinance the debt. Or often we see a case where the company has debt that's contractually short term. And um, so they will have a plan to take out new debt to pay off that old debt. So how does any decision to refinance impact the the debt classification at the balance sheet date? Yeah. So this is where you'd look at, you know, you have a situation, you have contractually short term debt at the balance sheet date, but you can get it to be non-current based on things that happen after the balance sheet date. So you can get this short-term debt to non-current in two ways. You can either have a long-term issuance of debt or equity after the balance sheet date, but before the financials are issued, or through a financing agreement that meets certain conditions. So I'm going to talk about the easier one first. So if you have an actual long-term issuance of debt or equity after the balance sheet date, before you issue the financials, and the proceeds from that new debt offering or equity issuance are used to repay the short-term debt, that's usually pretty straightforward. You can get to non-current. So say I'm at the balance sheet date. I have $10 million of debt that matures, say, in three months. But before the financials are issued, I went out and, and issued new long-term debt, say, for $15 million in five years. So, so if I take $10 million from the proceeds from that new debt and pay off the old debt, I'd be able to classify... Um, that whole 10 million as non-current because of the subsequent issuance of this long-term debt there. All right. So then Suzanne, that intent and ability is, it's very important here, Mm -hmm. but you gave two examples. The second one was financing agreement. So I'm presuming it is perhaps harder to show intent and ability with financing, but can you tell us what we should be thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Because when you actually issue it, then clearly you have the intent because you did it and you have the ability because you You did it. it. Yes. (laughs) Um, but with a financing agreement, it's, you know, it's a little bit more difficult. So a financing agreement means you just have an agreement in place 
where someone's going to stand ready to give you money when when you need to draw on it to repay this short term obligation. Um, so you you haven't been funded yet, right? So one, you have to actually have the intent to use that agreement to repay that short-term debt. So let's say you have that. Well, now the agreement has to meet certain specific conditions to even qualify is that to say you have the ability to do it. Um, one, the financing agreement has to be long-term. That's easy. Um, no violations of covenants and the lender has to be capable of honoring the agreement. But the one that really get people get um, tripped up on or that causes you maybe not to be able to use the agreement is that the agreement can't be canceled for subjective reasons. You know, can't have these subjective acceleration um, clauses like I talked about earlier. So like I talked about earlier, if you, if you have them in contractually long-term funded debt, like that's fine. You're going to do that probability assessment. But when you're trying to get short-term debt to long-term through the use of a financing agreement, it's very strict. And it is really common to have these um, subjective acceleration clauses in financing agreements because the lender, you know, might want to have the ability to get out if something bad happens before you actually draw down. So you might see it as an event of default again, but you might more commonly in financing agreements see it as a rep, like a representation. So when you go to borrow that money, you have to rep that there's been no material adverse date change, sorry, in the business since a certain date, you know, each time you draw. And The issue is you could think there's no material adverse change in the business. You rep and the lender disagrees and they say, I'm not going to give you the money because I think Mm. something was was a problem. Um, So just maybe one example, because we get this question a lot. Say again, I'm at the 331 balance sheet date. I'm a quarter, my quarter closed. And I have $10 million of borrowing that matures, say, in three months. But at the balance sheet date, I already have a $100 million revolving line of credit available to me that I can use. So I want to say that I'm going to use the revolver. I'm going to draw on the line to repay that $10 million, say, in three months. But, you know, so let's say the borrowing under the revolver is long term. When I draw on a revolver, let's say it's, I don't have to pay back for five years or something. And I intend to do that. But the problem is, in my, let's say in this example, each time the company goes to draw on the revolver, it has to assert that there's been no material adverse change in the business, say, since the last audited financials. Well, that's considered subjective acceleration clause, like I was talking about earlier. Mm. And that means I can't use that revolver commitment to get my short-term debt to, to non-current in this case. And I only bring it up because that's what some companies kind of think, like, I mean, it makes sense. They're like, yeah, I have this revolver that I can always draw on. But if you have a sack, it's um, it's a bit of a problem to get it there. All right. Definitely a good reminder. And I actually remember dealing with this issue when I was yeah. still an audit partner. <laughs> so I, I, I know um, that this definitely is something that pops up. So Suzanne, thank you so much for your reminders. This is a perfect place to end because it kind of leads into our next week's episode, which will be on uh, accounting for debt refinancing. But let me ask you a final question before we go. And you gave us, uh, I think, a lot of places where companies can get tripped up today. Mm-hmm. Anyone that you would call out is like more common than others or the like biggest like red star that you would give is something to pay attention to because you you see problems associated with it? I think um, one of the biggest ones is this kind of surprise about the financing agreement and how you can't use it. 
to get long, sorry, short-term debt to non-current. I think that can come as a surprise because if you're planning to, you know, hey, I'm going to use that and that's going to mm-hmm. be fine. And then you may find out um, farther down the road, like after the balance sheet date that you can't, and maybe you don't have time to actually go out and issue new debt or do something like that. And you might um, be stuck with the current classification. So I guess I would just watch out for that. Yes. Excellent reminder. I, like I said, from my own experience, I, I think that's a good one. So Suzanne, such a pleasure to have you back this week and uh, looking forward to next week's episode. Me too. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.